Well, we're here again, T. Randolph and Friends. Um, I have a wonderful guest today. I always have wonderful guests because the people we talk to are, I think, really incredible and have so many good things to share with us. Today I'm with one of my dearest friends, Manny Olivas. Uh, Manny is someone who I've known for a number of years now. He is a uh, pastor at uh, a church called Calvary Chapel Skyline or Skyline Church. I've known Manny for a number of years. I have him here today on the topic of forgiveness. We're going to be addressing what forgiveness can look like in a life. His story is so compelling, and I urge you to listen in because today I feel maybe one of the most incredible podcasts we've ever done. We've had some wonderful speakers in the past. Uh, He, I think, is going to join the group of people who can share from personal life some of the ups and downs and really how he came to terms with some trauma in childhood, young adulthood, even adulthood, and learn to take that and put it in the perspective of how God would look at it or how uh, a human being might look at it in a healthy way. So with that, I wanted to say hello and thank you for coming, Manny. Thank you for having me here, Andy. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, who you are, what you're doing today, and and um, then I want to share with you a little bit about y- your life. Well, I uh, pastored the church, as you mentioned, here in Thousand Oaks. Uh, I've been the pastor out here for a little over eight years now. The Lord brought us out here. We were living in Montana for a couple of years, uh, doing work at a school of discipleship. And uh, we originally were living in the Bay Area, and God brought us to Southern California. Apparently, he saw the need for me to be here, so that's why we're here. And um, God has been doing some really neat things, not only in our church, but in our family, and um, it's a testimony of how powerful God is. Now, Manny, you're originally from Salinas, California? Yes, that's right. Salinas, uh, for those who don't live in California, where where is that located? Uh, The best reference is um, we're about 10 miles inland of Monterey. And so it's a, it's a farm community, it, um, predominantly Hispanic, and uh, predominantly lower income. Not the lowest, but uh, it definitely is down there. And uh, when you uh, were living in Salinas, did you go to high school there as well? Yeah, I went to high school there, grew up there my, my whole life. Uh, growing up, I basically had never left Salinas. I'd basically never really explored out. Uh, Grew up there, went to school there, graduated high school there, and shortly after I graduated, after I turned 18, my my girlfriend then, who's my wife now, we both moved out and and moved to Las Vegas, and so we were kind of traveling about, yeah. And for a time, uh, you were also in the U.S. Navy, correct? Yeah, and that's why we left Salinas, actually, because we had a child while we were still in high school, so we were 17 when we had our first child, and... Just realizing that a high school diploma wasn't going to quite get me uh, the job that I needed to take care of my family, I opted to join the military. And so that's why we moved, moved to Las Vegas, just to kind of uh, step out and venture, and, and there is where I joined the military. Mm-hmm. Well, for those who are listening, um, I want you to know we're going to talk now about the early years for Manny. Uh, for those of you who have listened to the podcast, you know I have a section on my early years. 
And uh, right now, Manny, I want to ask you a little bit. Tell me a little bit about your parents and go back to your, your childhood, uh, five, six years old, seven years old. What was it like for you growing up in Salinas? And tell us a little bit about your family life. Well, growing up, looking back, you know, now that I, I see things differently, grow, growing up was uh, rather difficult. Um, just to give you a little insight of what my, my family situation was, my father was a heroin addict from the age of 13. Wow. He was introduced to heroin uh, from somebody at school, and he had been on heroin all his life. And where, where did your dad uh, grow up? Was he it in grew Salinas? up in a small town just south of Salinas called Soledad. Uh, okay. There's a prison there, but there's a small community next to it. That's where he grew up. So your dad, at the age of 13, starts using heroin. That's right. Okay. And so, um, you know, him and my mom got together. Um, I'm the oldest of four children. And, and growing up, it just seemed kind of, to me at the time, normal. We grew up in a low-income community, usually. Um, there was always drugs, there was always alcohol, there was always violence, there was always cursing, there was always just dysfunction in the family altogether. Now, when this is happening to you, though, at a young age, to you, it just seems normal. It's very normal. Right, because, of course, you don't know any different because this is what you're growing up with. And there's nothing to compare it to because all my friends have similar scenarios. And so there's nothing to to basically compare to and say this is messed up. How old was your mom and dad when they got married? You know. Oh man, I think um, my dad was 23. My mom was probably uh, 19 or 20. Okay, something so, like that. So your dad, from am I right in understanding, from 13 he starts using heroin, but he's continuing to use it even at the age of 23. Oh yeah, yeah. He he used okay. it. He used it well into, I think, his late 40s or early 50s. So when you are born into this relationship your mom and dad have, your dad's using heroin. That's right. With, did your mom ever have an addiction of any kind? You know what? I didn't know her to be a, a user of any sort. I know she didn't do heroin. I know she despised it because of what it did to my father. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw her smoking cigarettes, and that was about the extent of mm-hmm. her, her abuse. Okay. So... so um, did your parents then move to Salinas after they got married? Yeah, you know, um, my grandmother, my mom's mom, lived in a, another small farm community, Chular. And these are towns that you'd never, ever hear of unless unless you lived in those areas. Mm-hmm. But they lived there for a while, and then they eventually moved to Salinas. And those are the kind of the years that I remember. I remember vaguely moments in Chular, but mostly in Salinas. Okay. So you uh, you got three siblings, you and and the, your three siblings. You got mom and dad. Yep. You're in Salinas. When do you um when you first start recognizing it at 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 your young age? This is you know as you're starting to mature now, getting close to becoming a teen. Did you come come a time where you were getting sucked into an environment of drugs and violence, alcohol? Uh, did that ever happen it, for it, you? It doesn't happen because. Um, See, the problem is when you grow up in that environment, it's almost um, revered, meaning, you know, your peers, your friends, the kids that you go to school with. Um, I grew up in a town where it's predominantly run by gangs. And so the more violent, the more tough, the more um, hardened that you are, the more respected you are. And so to have a, a father that is hardcore and his drug abuse, his association with uh, mafia members, um, people respected me, 
even though I was just a kid. So your dad, was was he part of the Mexican mafia? He was not ever part of the Mexican mafia, but his friends were. Okay. And so he was well-respected in that regard. Good people understood that if they messed with your father, his friends would intervene, and the outcome might be pretty ugly. Exactly. Okay. So, um, so when you're in elementary school, how do you inter- interface with the other kids? I mean, are all you living in the same kind of environment where you've got this going on? Um, not necessarily. There was a lot of friends that had normal homes, but I didn't spend enough time to know the difference. Um, and there were moments, I guess you could say, where I felt bad about myself. And I'll mm-hmm. give you a couple for instances. Uh, we were we were relatively poor. And when I mean poor is my, I had one pair of shoes that usually lasted me three school seasons. Wow. And so they bought them big, and I wore them until they wore out. And when the the soles would wear out, I would simply, and this is really sad, but I did it. Um, I remember I had a pair of shoes that were so worn that they had holes on the bottom. And to keep my socks from getting wet, I just simply put a sandwich bag um, over my socks, and then I put my shoe on. And so that that's kind of the situation we grew up in. So you mentioned earlier that you've got the poverty aspect, but the psychological aspect of surviving in that environment um, starts to take over. Because what I'm hearing you saying is, Randy, I had to be tough. I had to learn how to maybe shut down my emotions so that I could get through what I had to get through. Oh, yeah. Did that oh, happen for you? Most definitely. I mean, it took years for me to kind of restore and rebuild emotion, in, in especially towards my wife. Um, because it just simply wasn't there, mm-hmm. and I still feel that today. I'm I'm a I'm still a hardened guy. Mm-hmm. You know, if it wasn't but for the grace of God that softened my heart, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm still very callous in many ways, mm-hmm. and it t- it comes from stems from my childhood. Well, you know, it's funny. You that's why you and I embrace each other so much <laughs> because right. I had the same kind of childhood. And those of you who may have listened to my early years, what happens when you're in this environment is you learn not to love because. It's something that you're fearful of. You're you're just trying to live to the next day. You put the walls up because you need to psychologically. It's just the body's reaction sometimes to the extreme trauma that you're exposed to. And the thing I want to share with those who are listening, if you're someone who's been through a very difficult childhood uh, or a difficult young adult life, maybe even adulthood, What I want you to do is, as you listen to Manny's story unfold, I want you to pay attention to some of the landmark events that happened in his life that I believe give every single person on planet Earth hope and you can have an expectancy that you're not alone, you're not walking alone, and there are people that God will put in your life to help you get through difficult stuff and the Lord himself will be with you. So when we get to some of those points, I really emphasize that. But right now, when you're hearing Manny and I talk about what happens in a young life where all this hard stuff's going on, uh, realize we're doing it so that you can better understand and appreciate what Manny's going to share with you, which is the journey of victory, which is, again, what we're all about here. So Manny, okay, so you're putting putting on these these, uh, sandwich bags to keep your feet dry. You're living probably from from hand to mouth, really, for food, That's which right. is hard. And the gang thing's starting to look kind of appealing because I'm assuming if you're in a gang, you got the family orientation going on, notwithstanding it's dysfunctional. 
the power thing, the protection thing, and probably more money so that you can eat better than you're eating at home. Was that kind of the stuff that was happening it's, for you? It started to go there. Mm-hmm. Um, my my first job was working with an uncle, and he was paying me 20 bucks for the day going out delivering um, snacks and chips at various stores. And so that's how I made ends meet at first. Mm-hmm. And then I, uh, I started using drugs, and this is after my parents separated. And I'm kind of forwarding a little bit. Yeah, how bit. old were you when your parents separated? You no, know, I, I, it's hard to remember. I'd say 11, 12 years old. Okay. Somewhere in that range. All right. And so, you know, things are rough. Um, and I'll get into that in a little bit. But needless to say, they separated and I started using drugs. The first thing I did was I got high, smoked some weed. And then um, from there, it kind of escalated. The, ne- the very next thing I did was my friends turned me on to Coke. And then from there, uh, I got introduced to LSD, acid. And, and since I was so close to Santa Cruz, um, I started buying it and I started selling it at mm. high school. Mm. And so that was a source of income. I mean, I, I could buy a sheet of acid, which had about 100 pieces, 100, 100 little squares. I could buy it for $40 and sell every one of those for $5 each. And so I was turning a profit, and that's how we started to survive. You know, uh, the, the, the interesting thing, again, for those who are listening, I never want you to say to yourself, I'm not good enough to be loved. Or I never want you to say that my past history defines who I am today. Uh, my hope is as you continue to listen to our conversation that you, you realize, notwithstanding where you are, notwithstanding anything that you've ever done, you can go forward living a free life, and you're not defined by a failure in the past, however you wanted to. However, you yourself define that failure. That doesn't identify who you are today, and you can be free, and your journey in life can be a free journey as we're going to explore with Manny as we go forward here. So Manny, so okay, you start to do the drugs yourself, do you, and you, in, in some respects you're, you're dealing a little bit. As you start to do this, do you are is there any type of uh, reluctance? Or are you feeling kind of convicted at all that hey, maybe I'm not doing something that's right? Or did that never even enter your mind? Not at all. Okay, you know, we are created as creatures of love, and I'm talking real, true love the way God intended. And so what started happening with the drugs, and it, it could be any form. It could be drugs. It could be abuse. It could be materialism. I mean, you name it. But what happens is we start to pacify the absence of love with these things. And so it becomes a suitable substitute only for a while until you start to feel the weight of it and the heaviness. And it, it all comes down to a bo- you know, boiling point. And it eventually will spill over, and it'll get the better view, and it will, always. Mm-hmm. I think <laughs> I, I, I've listened to a lot of people uh, on our show, and one of the most profound things I've ever heard is what you just said, which is that the love component and how we we need love, but in our brokenness or the dysfunction, mm-hmm. we try to satiate that in manners that only make it worse for us. Right. And, you know, as we move forward and as we we start to realize that the Bible is actually a book of love. I mean, people can say that the Bible is a historical book. It's a book of prophecy. It's a book of fairy tales, some people would say. 
Um, there's a lot of things that people say about the Bible, but make no mistake that the Bible is a book of love. It begins with God's love for his creation. It ends with God's love for his creation. And if there's any place that we're going to find it, it is in his word. In your statement earlier, which I thought also was very profound, you said, you know what? In order for me to forgive, I first have to know how to love. I completely agree with that. So as you're going through your young life, um, not only are you not being modeled love, but you don't even know what love looks like because you've never seen it. Would that be about right? That's exactly right. We didn't know what love, I'll give you an example. Um, I cannot recall a moment where, and you can probably relate to this, where my father ever said, I love you, son. Did he ever say that to you ever? Never. You know, my dad didn't tell me he loved me till I was almost 40 years old, and I had to demand it from him in a phone call with him, you probably with my mom to... yelling at him over the phone. You coerce it out well, of Well, what my dad used to say to me is, you know I love you. I said, well, that doesn't mean much to me. I, 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 would, I would love it if you said to me, son, I love you, or Randy, I love you, and he just couldn't do it. He finally, now, now he does it. Uh, because I've, I've let him understand that it's important to me, and it's like hugging him. My dad wouldn't hug me very much, ever. And I started just hugging him all the time that I see him now that he's older, and he just knows when he's around me, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, and I think that even today in our society, we downplay the importance of expressing love to our children. I agree. Just being able to say, simply say, I love you. Right. Not, you know I love you. Right. And when he used to say that to me, I'd be like, you know, I, I, you know in, in my heart, I just wanted so much for him to just straight out, unqualified, say, I love you, son. Because I needed that so much, and, and I had so much dysfunction that uh, ultimately I had to go to the main source, which was the Lord, of course, and he became my, 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 my dad. Because my earthly father, and again, he had his own reasons for why he couldn't do what he did, so I had to break the cycle, which the Lord helped me do. And so, as okay, so you're growing up, and it's it's a lot of this. In order to make it, I don't know what love is. I can't have love. I'm building up these walls. Uh, I do want to talk with you a little later about how you're dealing with that today as an adult. So as this progresses, Manny, what happens after 11, 12, 13? Well, um, initially, I, be, I became resentful towards my mom. So when my mom and dad got separated, I took, I took the, I made my mom the problem, and I held her accountable for the divorce. And uh, from a child standpoint, it was because she made him leave the house, and I didn't really understand what was really going on behind the scenes. I didn't know anything about how their marriage was. I saw them interact. I saw them fight. I saw them talk. I saw them have fun. And so for me, I didn't know what was going on. But she came to a, a boiling point herself where she she just couldn't put up with the drugs. She couldn't put up with the abuse. And I guess I'd found out later on that there was some infidelity on his behalf. And so she, she had enough and mm -hmm. she left. Mm -hmm. But initially... A lot of anger and a lot of resentment and a lot of hatred towards my mom. Now, when you say hatred, that's a pretty powerful word. Oh, yeah. I I wanted to, and, and I kind of exaggerate this, but if you were there with me at the time, I wanted to make her pay for this mm -hmm. in any way I could. Did your f siblings feel the same way? They were kind of young. They didn't understand. 
but I tried to make them feel that. Did you feel as the oldest that you had to step in now and be like the father figure? Absolutely. Because dad's gone, right? That's exactly what I did. I stepped in. I became the the father figure for my siblings. I have two younger brothers and a baby sister. How old were you when this started? Whether you were 13 or 12? Well, yeah, I was about 13 and... You know, my brother was 10, my other brother was 7, and my okay. other sister, you know, my sister is 5. So 13 and 12, you're, you're doing the drugs, your dad's gone, um, you're upset with your mother. What was your mom doing to cope with his departure? Did you see her doing anything that was unusual? I mean, you said she didn't do drugs. Was your mom working? You know what? She was working, but she had eventually turned to drugs and uh, friends and partying, and mm-hmm. she became... You know, she was coping with her own issues. Did your mom seem like she was isolating herself from her children because that was the only way she could cope with the pain? Or was she even available to you when this was going on? Mostly not. Mm -hmm. Mostly not. She worked um, a graveyard shift, Mm -hmm. and so she was gone all night, sleeping all day. Even when she was there, she wasn't there. Right. And it's not like we had that kind of relationship with my mom to be able to sit down and say, Mom, I'm feeling this. Can we talk about it? Right. We never we never talked. Right. So, all right. So, um, as this is progressing, what's happening in your life um, with you and, and your decision-making process? Well, I think for me, I remember distinctly, I, I stopped caring. And what I mean about stop, I stopped caring is uh, I started becoming more reckless with my life. I figured if, if they don't value my life, why should I? And so I would do a lot of drugs. I would try to do as much as I could to impress my friends. I remember on my 13th birthday, I almost died of blood alcohol poisoning. And I just became totally, totally out of control. You know, uh, for those who are listening, if you're a young person and you're in a situation where you feel like your life's not worth anything, here's the hope and, and the victory I want to give you. Manny's talking about his childhood. You can listen to mine and think about this for a moment. Here you have two guys who really should just be dead or in jail. And the two of us right now are talking about how much victory God's allowed us and how we're still working on ourselves. Believe me, we got a lot of work to do. But what I want to share with you is this. Never give up hope. Never give up on yourself And don't give up on God. Because sometimes what happens in life is, yes, you're going through pure hell. Yes, you think, I can't make it another day. But rejoice in knowing, and and Christ said this, yes, you will have trouble in this world, but be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. If Manny and I hadn't gone through some of the stuff we've gone through, we wouldn't be able to share with you right now our personal journey of victory and how notwithstanding we've been through some very difficult moments in life we've been preserved and 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 we've been carried if you will by the god who created us to allow us to do what love others so i want to encourage you who are listening don't give up on yourself don't give up on others and reach out don't stay isolated do not be afraid to confront what may be happening in your life for fear that you're going to be judged or for fear that you're going to be perceived to be weak. If you need help, by all means, go get it. 
and and there's so many outlets and services today. And of course, you can always contact Manny on the email that'll be on the site or any of our other speakers. They're all here for you to help you through whatever it is you might be going through. So to get back to your story, Manny, you're at this place where, okay, I'm not worth anything because my mom and my dad have told me that. Nobody else around me is telling me I'm worth much. So I'm just going to be what I've been told I should be, which is, hey, just be whatever makes you feel good. And I'm going to be reckless. So what did that recklessness look like? Um, At the beginning, it just meant doing a lot of drugs, honestly. I mean, for a 13-year-old to be dropping acid, to be snorting cocaine, drinking alcohol, smoking weed and cigarettes... I mean, it's unthinkable that any of our kids at that age would be doing all those things, but unfortunately, they are. That's what they're turning to. I think the there was a couple of moments in my life that really started to change my perspective. Uh, one was when I met my girlfriend. Her name is Carrie. I met her in a high school, and um, you know, I grew up in a high school where it's predominantly Hispanic, and there was like three white people. And Carrie was one of them. <laughs> and so I was attracted to her. And so I, I started dating her. And before long, um, we, we ended up getting pregnant. She was 16. And I was 16. And by the way, we both have the same exact birthday. And so here we are, 16 years old in high school. She's pregnant. And by 17, uh, we had our first child. And that's when, um, that's when re- everything really started to change. Uh, and what I mean by change is... I had a sense of responsibility. I had brought life into this world and I felt obligated to take care of that life. And so I was uh, really pressed to graduate from high school. And once I did, I realized that's not going to get me that far. And that's why I decided to join the military was to provide for my new family. Now, when you uh, were growing up, you were telling me the other day about a time when you were driving in your car in Salinas and there was a sheriff behind you. And you said, I think one of the sheriffs in the car was someone that you knew, or maybe he was a sheriff in training. You want to tell us a little bit about, about that situation? <laughs> yeah. When you grow up in an area like Salinas or, you know, for us, you know, Oxnard or whatever it might be, you, you take on the persona of a gang member. I, I can say honestly that I wasn't a gang member per se, uh, but I definitely took on that persona. I looked tough. I had shaven head. I wore the clothing. I had the tattoos. And so while I was in the Navy, I was um, cruising around town. I was by myself. I was in my lowrider car, and uh, there was a sheriff that was following me, and it was in, in Nevada. And they did a routine stop. I don't even remember why they did, but they pulled me over. And as they pulled me over, one of the one of the officers was an officer in training. He was actually in the Navy as well. And uh, I found out later on that that guy uh, shared that when they pulled me over, that they were they were terrified. They weren't sure what was going to happen. They didn't know if I was going to pull a gun out and shoot them or if I was going to drive off. Uh, that was genuinely what they felt. And this is from an outsider, and this is their observation of me then. Right. 
Right. So so here you are. You're you're in this situation. Now I'm going to fast forward a little bit. We're going to go back to what happened in the Navy here a minute and how God redeemed that whole right. situation. Just for those who are listening, there was some things that happened with Manny in the Navy, but God took that and miraculously uh, did some wonderful things with that. But I'm going to fast forward for a minute. There was a time when um, you were arrested. Is it was it for brandishing a handgun at a California Highway Patrol officer? That's right. And when that happened um, in California, there's what's known as a three strikes rule. And bottom line is, if you get convicted, I believe of three felonies, you I think it's a mandatory life term or very serious consequences. So, Manny, tell us a little bit about. Uh, what happened with you and this gun incident and how the three strikes rule almost applied to and what happened with you in the courtroom and there was a judge and just kind of fill us in on, on this situation that really, I, I, I'm, I'm going to say from what I understand, was you were at the fulcrum. You were either going to go full-blown to jail or you were going to die or your life was going to change. Tell us about that. So to kind of bring you up to speed of what was going on, um, circumstances kind of led to me being discharged from the Navy. Um, I had been out of the Navy for about six months. Uh, initially, I started going back to what I was used to. I started selling drugs. And so I was selling pot at the time. And I realized that that obviously was not going to make ends meet. And so what I ended up doing was I took a job and um, that job took me out of state. So I'm working up in Oregon. We were working for about about four months, and as we're driving back, uh, I'm on edge. I'm still I still have that gangster persona. I'm still a tough guy. And as we're driving, it's early in the morning on a Saturday morning. It's about six thirty seven a.m. There's not a soul on on the freeway. We're up in Northern California, like by Red Bluff, and a guy pulls out of nowhere, cuts us off, and he takes off. And so I was the passenger, and we ended up chasing him down. And now the driver, it was very, very hot-headed at the time, you know, a little incident of road rage. He asked me to go to the back of the van and get the little handgun that we had. You guys had a handgun back there? (laughs) (laughs) Did you know it was there? I knew it was there. All right. What kind of handgun was it? It wasn't the first time. Okay. It was a a little revolver. All right. Was it like a twenty-two or no? It was like bigger? a thirty-eight. Oh, uh, thirty-eight. So it was some serious uh, bullet size. Yeah, and so we, um, I, I got it, and I held on to it, and I just basically to myself, I thought, you know, cool heads will prevail. I'll hang on to this. I won't do anything. Uh, but things kind of got out of control, and I, in my pride, ended up pointing the gun out on this off-duty police officer. So the guy that you chased down is an off-duty police officer. That's right. But you didn't know it. And we didn't know that. Okay. And it was himself and his wife driving on the freeway. Oh, my gosh. And so... So you chase this guy down, and you're holding the gun thinking, if I have it, nothing's going to happen. That's right. All right. That's right. And so I ended up pulling it out, and, and, you know, he backed off, of course. Did he stop? He, he didn't stop, but he slowed down significantly. Mm-hmm. And as we went down, we're driving 15, 20 minutes later. Um, <laughs> obviously, cars. we were surprised, but uh, yeah, we were met by every patrol officer that they could muster in 10 minutes time. And so uh, there I am lying on the side of the road with the shotgun in the back of my head, and I'm getting hauled off to jail. And that's what, that's what had happened. 
And so we got to the jail and I called my wife and I said, hey, I'm in jail. I got busted for this. And she said to me, oh, stop kidding. Where are you? Are you back home? Because I'd been away for a couple months and uh, she knew me to be a jokester. And I said, no, this is a real deal. And I just remember, I remember specifically, I, I'll never forget this sound. She said to me over the phone, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to ruin our family? And it just hit me like I, all this I had always been doing was ruining other people's lives. And, I, and for a moment, all I could think about was my dad. Like I am modeling my dad in a different form, but I've just ruined my family just like my dad ruined his family. And I was feeling that. I was laying you know, in the jail cell uh, absolutely hopeless. And we sat there. I had got arrested with my cousin, who was the driver. I sat there for about four days, and I didn't know where to turn. Didn't know where to turn, didn't know where to go. My family, poor as they were, couldn't bail me out. And so um, I remember it was Tuesday, fourth day. They called me out of my cell, and uh, I went up to the counter. I was like, what's going on? They said, well, the county doesn't want to pursue the charges. We're going to drop them. We're going to let you go. And I said, just like that? And they said, just like that. And I, I tell you, it was a miracle. I didn't, I didn't recognize it as a miracle yet. I was still too prideful to admit that because something else would happen a few days later. And so that's what had happened. And I was absolutely blown away. And, they, and just to remind you, it was not three felonies, but it was five felony charges that had been uh, charged against me for doing what I had done. Wow. And so uh, they dropped the five charges. Um, three days later, we're celebrating, we're partying, and uh, I ended up uh, drinking, I'm driving, I end up racing another vehicle. Uh, I run a highway patrol person off of the road, uh, almost went head on with them. This is three days later. This is three days later, you know? Obviously didn't learn my lesson. Uh, this is three days later, and... Uh, I got pulled over, and uh, first thing she asked me, is there a problem? And my wife and I had concocted a story that we were fighting, that this was a marital spat. Because if they knew that I was racing, I was going to go to jail, and I was like, I can't go to jail again. And so uh, we played the, we, we did our little role-playing, and uh, they kind of bought it. And uh, eventually they, they put me through a, a you know, sobriety test. I passed it miraculously, and uh, she let me go. She let me go. She gave me a ticket for, for uh, not having proof of insurance. And, and uh, I walked away that night, walked away. And it was that night, Randy, that my wife and I were, as our car, our car overheated because I was racing it. You don't race a four-door family sedan. And so um, we were walking on the side of the road, and I just looked over at her, and I said, I was guilty. I deserve to go to jail. And they forgave me. And, and I don't understand why, but all I know is that God is trying to get our attention. And if we don't turn our life to him and ask him what he wants of it, I don't think there'll be a third chance. And that's what brought us to basically the end of ourselves. And I believe that night we gave our life to Jesus Christ. And we didn't know it until the next day, until someone actually walked us through the gospel and told us who Jesus was and you know what he had done for us and what he wants to do through us. Uh, but it was, it was, that was the turning point for our lives. And it would be radically different from that point on. Some will die for you. Some will lie to you. There's all 
Thanks for listening to T. Randolph and Friends. This is part one of a two-part interview with Pastor Manny Olivas. Join us next time as Manny shares more of his life story. I walked away that day and I said, I guess God doesn't want me. I guess it didn't work. And, I, and it was that following week where my friend approached me. He said, hey, you want to get high? And I said, I don't even know what that means, but sure, let's give it a shot. My mom had hooked up with this guy who was just a bad, bad guy. Uh, He used to make his own meth. And so uh, she ended up taking the fall for him on, on one of the raids. And so she was on probation. While they were searching the house... Uh, They ended up finding a small bag of weed that was tucked away in one of the bedrooms. I'm a Christian. I'm I'm serving as a youth pastor, worship leader, and an associate at a new church plant. And here I am in this orange jumpsuit. You know, I feel, feel awful. Going back to that day when I was talking with my father on the porch, my dad was so prideful. He wasn't able to say this, but I knew exactly what he meant. He was looking at me and he was saying, I'm not proud of you. He was saying, I want to be like you. Here, the roles had reversed. And instead of me looking up to my father as an example, my father was looking up to me as an example. Thanks for listening to T. Randolph and Friends. Please write to us or check out our website, blog, and conversations at trandolphandfriends.com. We would love to hear your thoughts on topics and guest ideas for future shows. We are Listening to Life.